Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Hey, we're going to be in a couple of areas of Scripture, Philippians chapter 2, as well as 1 John chapter 3, as we continue our book-by-book, chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse study of, and as we're going through the book of Philippians. And so I'm excited about uh, the, this coming Sunday as well. We'll head back into our seven sayings on the cross, and then we're going to engage in the gospel according to Mark. And so we'll be looking at a very practical Christianity because Mark was a very practical, has, gives a very practical presentation uh, of Jesus Christ as the servant of the living God. But tonight, Philippians chapter 2, as well as 1 John chapter 3, would you pray with me? Lord, we just want to prepare our hearts in prayer. And we want to ask you that you would speak to us in a supernatural way. For Lord, Paul's in jail. And I know there are many that find themselves in a spiritual jail, a mental jail, an emotional jail. And Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is giving us a way to break out of that prison. Because though he physically was in jail, spiritually he was in the heavens. And so, Lord, would you speak to us tonight in a way that we can understand Would you protect us, Lord, from falling asleep in the garden like the disciples? For many of us have had a long day, and we've come here to be refreshed, replenished, and recharged. And we just pray that your word would accomplish its purpose for which you sent it. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, before we engage, let's... Catch us up to speed where Paul's at. He is in jail. He's a jailbird. And one of the things I love about Paul, instead of murmuring and complaining there in that jail cell, even disputing with the Christians that are using his jail sentence against him. Well, don't follow Paul in his way of Christianity. Follow us in our way of Christianity, and you won't end up in jail. They were using Paul's sentence against him. But Paul did not find himself in this place of depression and despair. He did not begin disputing. In fact, he used it and said, listen, the gospel's being preached. I don't care if they're mocking me in jail. At least Christ's name is getting out. You see, Paul practice what he preached. In Colossians chapter 3, he tells the church, set your mind on things above. And that's exactly what Paul does. Though he is physically in the jail, his mind is on things above, and he chooses to write this church. It's an example for all of us. I said in my prayer, some of us find ourselves in a mental jail. Some of us are filled with anxiety We can't come outside of our everyday context and take a step of faith because we live in fear. Some find themselves in an emotional jail. 
someone has hurt us and bitter and rage and anger and resentment keeps us from getting to know anyone else because they could hurt us too. It's an emotional jail. Some of us find ourselves in a spiritual jail. We know so much about God's word, we can't relate to anybody. Be careful. That sounds like a pharisaical jail. And so we see Paul breaking out of this jail cell. And he breaks out of this jail cell by choosing to think of others. He breaks out of this jail cell by serving someone else. He comes out of himself in his situation and he purposes to serve the Lord and he writes a letter. It's a letter of encouragement, but we're going to see tonight. It's also a letter of exhortation. You see, Paul writes this letter because he wanted to thank them. He wanted to thank them for sending a gift. If you remember a Roman jail, if someone didn't take care of you, you weren't taken care of. And so we're going to find out that this church found out he was in jail and they sent Epaphroditus to minister to his needs and to take care of him. They loved Paul and Paul loved them. And he wanted to write a letter that's a thank you letter. Well, you know how a thank you letter feels when someone shows gratitude and someone says, hey, thank you for what you did and how you blessed my life. None of us are looking for it, but it sure does make us feel great. But he also wrote this letter not just to express his gratitude. There's a problem in the church. And that problem is an argument between two ladies. Now, it could have been two men. Because wherever you've got people, you've got problem. And there was an argument between these two ladies, and he wanted to help solve the problem. Well, when you've got your mind set on things above, you're not a complainer, you're not a murmurer, you're a solver. You try to redeem situations. And so what he does is he begins this letter by talking to them about what it means to be a citizen of heaven despite what you're going through. Take a look. We'll pick it up in uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, only as a measure of review. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul writes this letter and he says, listen, I want to talk about your conduct because I want you to focus on it. The only thing he says, only let your conduct. This word we remember from last week, it's the word where we get our word politics and what he's communicating is, you are a citizen of heaven. And he's going to talk about what it means to be a citizen of heaven through until chapter 3, the very end of chapter 3. And the very first thing he wants to communicate is that they're unified. What we learned last week, we've got to endeavor to keep the, to keep the unity. Because wherever you got people, you got... How many of you are married? Raise your hand. How many of you have experienced marital bliss the entire time you've been married? You've never had one problem. Go ahead. Raise your hand. Because we'd like to make you the pastor of the church. How many of you got married? And after about, well, the honeymoon, day one, you had a problem. Go ahead. Raise your hand. (laughs) Hand goes real high. So did Andrea and I, but don't tell anybody she's right there. 
We were slammed into marriage on our honeymoon, and all of a sudden, she did something I didn't like, and she needed to know. See, I realized I was the Holy Spirit in her life at that very young age of marriage. And very quickly, I found out I'm not the Holy Spirit in her life. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit in her life. And if I want to have a successful marriage, I need to love her as Christ loved the church. And she needs to respect me and love and respect equal a holy marriage. A holy marriage. Amen? The Bible is very simple in regards to its context. Now, I don't know how I got... That's not even in my notes anywhere. Sorry, Andrea. But he says to them, I want you to be one. But wherever you've got people, you've got problem. So what he attempts to do, and what he does so successfully, is he uses the ministry of Christ in our lives to remind them of what they freely received, they should freely give. Take a look, Philippians chapter 2. We'll pick it up in verse 1. Therefore, he's concluding the point of being one. He says, if there's any consolation in Christ... We learn that word is not if, it is since. Since there's any consolation in Christ. If any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. What he's doing is using the ministry of Jesus to teach them a lesson. You see, Jesus, he's helped them. He's consoled them. That's the word console, a helper. He's consoled them in their time of trouble. They all knew that. Jesus had comforted them in their time of need. Jesus gave them fellowship with the Spirit because of his sacrifice. And as a daily portion of our daily existence, let me just, he says, Jesus provides mercy and affection. Now, how many of you did not, woke up this morning and you have come to church today and you drove on the 405 and you need God's mercy for what you were thinking while you were driving on the 405? Is there anyone that would say amen? How many of you went to work and you had that problem person and you had a thought about that person in your mind today that if you could pronounce leprosy, they would have it? (laughs) That was a hearty amen. (laughs) How many of you... You woke up this morning and you were in a happy mood and then all of a sudden your wife said, could you do this? And it just sent you to the great beyond. Don't say amen. (laughs) For your marriage sake. But it's amazing how much mercy and affection we need. How much mercy and affection we need as a daily portion each and every day. And I want you to think for a moment, if you would, about a two-year-old child. A two-year-old. I want you to think about all the mistakes they made. I want you to think about when they were beginning to walk. And you remember, it was this thing. Did you yell at them? I can't believe you don't know how to walk yet. And what's this goo-goo-gaga thing? 
Would you just get over it and eat the broccoli? Just eat it. Open your mouth. I'm not playing airplane with you. That's so childish. We're not doing that. Just eat it. How many of you remember? Open wide. And then right when you would go put it in their mouth, they would go. You couldn't get them to eat that yellow ground up squash if you tried. My kids were always happy when Andrea would leave town. She stopped leaving town when she found out what I fed them when she left. I thought M&M's in milk would be like cereal. It's so great. So great. She's a mom, and she stopped it immediately. My children actually told on me. But I want you to imagine a two-year-old child. How do you treat them? You console them. You comfort them. You fellowship with them. You speak to them in a way that, like, you would never speak to anyone else. In fact, if your wife is to put it on, take a video of you talking, oh, look at you, you know what I'm talking about. But yet, when it comes to someone who has hurt us, all of a sudden we forget how Christ has treated us. We throw it out the door because now we're offended. Now we're hurt. And we forget the fact of the way that Christ treats us. He treats us like a two-year-old in some sense. He consoles us and comforts us. He knows everything we touch is, gets dirty. So much so that he died on a cross because he loves us so much that even as Christians... Even as Christians, when we mess up, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us, not of some righteousness, but all of our righteousness. He has poured out his mercy and affection as if we're just a two-year-old. I remind you of the unmerciful servant in Matthew chapter 18 and the manner of which that we've received his mercy and affection. This guy, he was forgiven a debt of $5 million. He walks out of the palace. He sees a friend of his that owes him a dollar and begins to beat him up. The master hears about it and says, what's going on? I forgave your debt of $5 million. You're beating up your friend for a dollar. Hand him over to the torturers. See, it's easy to forget what Christ has been for us when we're hurt and we're offended. And so what Paul does is remind them. He reminds them of what Christ has been for them. And he says to them in verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I want you to remember how he's consoled you. I want you to remember how he's comforted you, how he's given you fellowship with the Spirit of God. You've got access to God through his Spirit. I want you to remember how much mercy and affection, and I want you to have the same mind for others as Christ has for you. He explains to them, we should go about handling the problems we have with people in the same way Christ handles us with the problems that we present to him. Christ doesn't get up in the morning, and he doesn't get up because he doesn't sleep or slumber. So don't send me an email. I understand. But he doesn't wake up in the morning and go, I got to deal with those people on earth again today. 
God the Father, do you know how difficult it is to keep praying for these people? They mess up each and every day. Who would say yes and amen to that? Who messes up each and every day? Any of you? Who lives the standard outside of Jesus? He knew that we couldn't, so he did for us and gives us an opportunity to make it right with God. You see, Jesus was not selfish. He wasn't thinking of himself and saying to himself, oh, those people, they hurt me every day. I'm not listening to their prayers today. He's not selfish. Jesus is not prideful. He's not out there going, listen, I'm in this for me, and if you hurt me, I'm done with you. That's not the way of Jesus. Jesus, he considers others better than himself. That's why he went to a cross. And knowing, knowing there's a problem with two women in the church, and like I said, it could have been two men, we begin to see how Paul, a gentle shepherd to this flock in Philippi, he begins to use how Christ treats them to be able to deal and handle the problem that's in the church. Because wherever you have people, you have a Some of you don't agree. (laughs) Wherever you've got people, you've got a problem. Let me tell you a story. Guy was rescued. He lived on an island all by himself. And so when they rescued him, there were three buildings on the sand. They asked him, what's the building in the center? He said, oh, that's my house. They asked him, what's the building on the left? He said, oh, that's the church that I go to. They said, well, what's the building on the right? He goes, that's the church I used to go to. (laughs) He's the only guy on the island. We got problems with ourselves. That's why we have problems with others. And it accentuates when we feel hurt, when we feel offended. Paul knows this is very difficult for them to hear. He knows it's difficult for them to hear how Christ has treated them. They need to treat each other because they've been hurt and they've been offended. So he tells them in verse 5, I want you to purpose to have the same mind of Christ. Purpose. You've got to make a purpose decision just like Daniel purposed not to defile himself. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego purposed not to bow down, though it was going to cost them everything and be thrown into a fiery furnace. You've got to purpose like Jesus, who set his face as a flint and marched up to Calvary for you and for me. Purpose to have the mind of Christ. And so Paul wants to help them understand the mind of Christ. And what he does is begin to explain, look at verse 6, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Stop there if you would for just a minute. He did not consider his position as a human. He came as a human as if he'd been robbed. Now, how many of you have ever been robbed? Anyone ever been robbed? It's the worst. If you haven't, I hope it never happens to you. I've been robbed several times. I grew up in the Bahamas where there was a financial crisis, an economic crisis in in the early 70s and 80s that caused crime to go through the roof. 
you feel violated. It's like someone's been in my stuff. Someone got in my car. Someone went through my glove box. My family and I, we went to Lake Tahoe one time, and I came outside, and all four of my doors of my truck were open. I couldn't believe it. It's Thanksgiving. How could people, how could they violate me on Thanksgiving? Like, we're all here. We're all happy. We're all having a holiday. I can't believe that people would break into my car at Lake Tahoe and go in my glove box and go into my center console and rip out all of the food and candy that was there. And then I smelled my car and I realized, bears. Bears had violated my car. They literally opened all four car doors. They took my gummy bears from my center console. They opened up my glove box. How in the world they did this, I was robbed. I was robbed by bears. I felt violated. I really did. I'm sure they slept right there in the comfortable warm leather seat. You see, with what Paul is asking them to do, Paul knows they feel violated and robbed of their right for justification. But Paul, they wronged me. They better make this right. Paul, something in me wants to see them pay for it. You know, that verse in Romans chapter 12, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord's servant. No, that's not what the verse says, and I hope no one said amen to that. Someone was like, hallelujah, I didn't realize I could do it. No, that would be Hezekiah 2.9, and it's not a verse in the Bible, because there is no Hezekiah in the Bible, just a king. Romans chapter 12, the Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We don't have a right to vengeance. Our only right is to forgive despite the offense. Do you realize in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7, Paul has to write the church, and he says this to them. Now, therefore, it's already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be robbed, be cheated? You see, Jesus, he didn't consider it robbery, that he was not, uh, 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 that his, his, his godly attributes, no, he was the God-man. And he feel robbed of this right. It was a decision that he made. And Paul is using the example of Jesus, and he said, listen, why not be wronged? Why not be robbed? Jesus didn't look at it as robbery. You see, this goes against our grain. Because when someone wrongs us, We want to make it right. And all I want you to do is think about your driving. I want you to think about when someone cuts you off. I want you to think about when that person, okay, you have been in the exit lane and the line is a mile long and you're about to get off onto the ramp. Now, you've been in traffic for a mile long, maybe 15 minutes, and that little Toyota Camry comes right up and puts its signal on and you just didn't look up for a second and they snuck in. Now, I'm from the Bahamas. I think that's actually smart. You're one of them, Pastor Chet? No, I did not say I was one of them. But how do you feel? Some of you are like, oh, I know exactly how that feels. 
How many of you have ever just wanted to give them a little tap on their back bumper? Like, uh, I just want you to know I saw that and I know what you did. Some of you are like not even looking at me because you've done it before. You see, it goes against our grain. Something, <laughs> something, so, so just said pray for me. Something about us wants to make it right. Something about us wants vindication. And if anyone understood this, it was the Mother Mary. Do you remember in John chapter 2? In John chapter 2, she goes to Jesus and she says, hey, they're out of wine. And I want to hear you to hear how Jesus responds to her so that you can understand the point. Jesus says, what does your concern have to do with me? Let me tell you what Mary's concern was. Jesus, this is my family. Like they all think I had a child out of wedlock. They don't believe me that you're the holy son of God. Jesus, like, this is my moment. My whole family's here. And you can do something that will prove you really are God. So would you just vindicate me? Would you just do something so that everyone here, all of my family would know that I was telling the truth? Because, Jesus, it was rough. I'm walking around as a teenager, pregnant through Nazareth. I had to leave and go to Elizabeth, and I stayed there for a long time. It was hard growing up. And, and Jesus, you know what they called you. Could you just do something? Could you vindicate me? It's in all of us. We all desire to be vindicated when someone wrongs us. But I want to let you know something. Even when someone wrongs us, God is still on his throne. God is still in control. And God has a way when someone wrongs us to even use that to build you up and to build your character and to turn a situation around. You see, we need to grow in our trust of him. And what he's saying is, when Jesus was mocked, when Jesus could have done something about it, he chose not to. He didn't take the power position and he didn't think that he was being robbed. He trusted God. Take a look at verse 7 if you would. Go back with me. But, and maybe you'll underline this in your Bible. But made himself. It was a purpose decision. Whom shall I send? Send me. This was a purpose decision of Jesus. He wasn't robbed. He purposely emptied himself, made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself of his rights. Think of the Garden of Gethsemane. He could have called down thousands of legions of angels, but he chose to be led by his creation to his crucifixion. He laid down his rights. He emptied himself. Paul is reminding the church of who Jesus is and who he is to them. He came in the likeness of men. He came as a human. 
Now that's important. Would you take a look? But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Look at verse 8. We're going to stop here. And being found in appearance as a man. Paul says it twice. He came in the likeness of men and he was found in the appearance of man. He wants them to understand God was all man. Jesus was all man. Jesus was all God. He was a human. Now let me express what he's trying to get across. He left heaven. He came in the likeness of men. He lived on earth. He went from golden streets to dirty feet. Think about that for just a minute. Now, I'm from the United States of America, and I went and served in Liberia, West Africa. I went from electricity and running water and washing machines to no electricity, no running water, and I washed my clothes like this for years. For years. And it still wouldn't compare to Jesus leaving golden streets and coming to dirty feet. Do you understand what heaven is? No, we don't. We have some description of golden streets and pearly gates, and we know we're going to see Moses, and we know there's rooms there for us that will blow our mind. We understand that earth is just, a, a, just not even a glimpse of what heaven is going to be. Think of the majesty of the mountains, the beauty of crystal lakes, the crystal sea that is there. As a surfer, I was always a little sad that it's a flat crystal sea, and it doesn't have any, not even a ripple in it. Like, so I think that God's going to probably give me New Zealand, um, as my little personal territory for the thousand-year reign. At least I'm praying for it, and if you are, I'm sorry. Um, and so we don't even have a picture of the image of heaven. And here Jesus comes as a baby. His mom has to clean him. I want you to just go with me with the humility of this for just a minute. Okay? His mom has to clean him and bathe him. He's a baby. He's a 12-year-old <coughs> in the temple, and he's going back and forth with the Pharisees. And I'm wondering, is he thinking, you guys are so dumb. Like, what was going through his mind at 12 years old when he's able to have a theological, spiritual, deep conversation with people that have been studying the Word of God for years? Think of the humility involved of leaving heaven and coming to earth. But he entered earth as a human but he chose and purposed to live as a citizen of heaven. Amen. And he's, Paul is using the example of Jesus. If Jesus can do it, his spirit is in you, you have the fellowship of the spirit, then you need to follow the example of, the, of Jesus. And not only as a citizen of heaven, would you look back at verse 7, he was a bondservant. A bondservant of God. I need to explain that word to you. I'm sure you know what it means. It goes all the way back to Old Testament law. You see, God knew that people would go into debt. He knew that people would want more than what they could afford. He also knew that some people wouldn't be able to afford. And so what he did was established a system that people that went into debt could be protected because the only way that you could pay the debt off was that you gave your life as a slave or as a servant to the debtor, to the person that you owed. But what God did was said, listen, 
you won't be a slave forever. Every seven years, every slave or servant is to be set free of their debt. So you would be set free at the end of seven years. It was called the year of Jubilee. But a bondservant, a bondservant was different than a slave. A bondservant no longer owed a debt. The debt had been canceled. The debt had been, they'd been set free from it. But a bondservant said to themselves, you know what? Serving my master has been a better life for me than the life that I was living in the world. So I'm making a decision today, and I'm committing myself to this master for the rest of my life. And what they would do is they would give their ear, put it in a door, they put a little piece of wood right here, and they would shut the door, and the wood would go through, and for the rest of their life they were marked in their ear as a bond servant, someone that chose, made a purpose decision to live under their master. He says, Jesus was a bond servant. He chose this. He chose to do the will of God. And he's encouraging the church, you should follow the example of Jesus. But now in chapter, in verse 8, He's going to give some characteristics of a bondservant. And what we need to look at as a bondservant is just another word for a citizen of heaven. Remember, he's talking about citizenship of heaven. He's talking about living on the earth, but yet as a citizen of heaven. And he gives another name for someone who is a citizen of heaven. It's called a bondservant. For example, we're Californians, but we're actually Americans. It's just another name. Californian is an American. An American well, we wouldn't say that. An American is not necessarily all California because you could be from Idaho. You can be from Florida. But if you're from one of the states, then you are an American. Well, he's saying here you're a bondservant, and a bondservant is just another name for a citizen of heaven. And look what he says about a bondservant in verse 8. As a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Do you hear the two words? A bondservant is humble, and a bondservant is obedient. We've already discussed the humility of Jesus leaving heaven and coming to earth. So let's outline a little bit of the obedience as we continue to read on. Obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He humbled himself and became obedient. Jesus obeyed God to the point of going to the cross. And Paul is using the life of Christ in what God asked Jesus to do to help them understand what he's asking them to do pales in comparison. He's asking them get along. He's asking them endeavor to keep the unity. He's not asking them to go and die on a cross. And he's using the example of Jesus and he's saying, listen, Jesus set the example. He humbled himself and was obedient. So could you be obedient and consider others better than yourself? Could you be obedient and could you show the affection and mercy that Jesus has given you? Could you be obedient and love your enemy? Now there's a promise for the humble. You can write it down in your notes. It's Luke chapter 14, verse 11. Jesus spoke it. James and Peter will reiterate it. He said this, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
You see, James and Peter would reiterate this in their letters because at the end of their life, they came to realize the truth of this statement. They would tell the church what Jesus said is true. They had learned its truth over the course of their life. With humility, God will lift you up. God will exalt you. You see, therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him, look at verse 9, the name which is above every name. You see, with humility, God will lift you up. He'll lift up your name. Now, let me give you a definition of name. You could maybe write it in your notes. The biblical definition of this word name is he'll give you authority. He'll give you a reputation. He'll give you a character. And what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18? All authority has been given to me. Because Jesus humbled himself, he was given the name. He was given authority. See, the church was thinking different. I can't give in. I can't let them know I was wrong. The church was thinking different. Well, they wronged me, and they hurt me, and I'm not going to forgive them. They need to say sorry. He goes, wait, 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 wait a second. Let's take a look at Jesus. Humility lifted him up. Humility gave him authority. Humility doesn't diminish our authority. It actually gives us authority. Take a look at the authority that Jesus has, that at the name of Jesus, verse 10, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Humility. See, the world thinks the exact opposite. And Paul was correcting their wayward thinking. The world thinks you can't be wrong. The world thinks being prideful, it will give you authority. I'm not going to tell my husband I'm sorry because I'm in control. Well, Pride, the Bible says, actually brings destruction. Pride actually causes more problems. That's why pride begins with PR. It's just more problems. But humility is the path to a reputation, to an authority in the situation. And there's a promise in obedience. Jesus, every knee would bow. Every knee would bow. You see, the promise of, for the humili- humility is authority, but the promise of obedience is a reputation. Take a look, if you would. We're going to continue to read on. Every knee will bow. And look at verse 11. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You see, when you choose to obey, you will gain a reputation of a lover of God. A reputation. John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. I want to be known as a lover of God. Do you know what John was called? He was called a son of thunder. That wasn't a great name. That meant John had an anger problem. Just giving you some FYI there. John had an anger problem. So Jesus referred to him as a son of thunder. Let me tell you why. Because Jesus said, follow me and I will make you. 
He was willing to take that son of thunder and by the letter of 1 John, that first epistle, he writes about love more than any other apostle and he is known as the apostle of love. Jesus took him from the son of thunder and the prison of anger and he set him free and made him the apostle of love. It was asked of John, written of Clement, his, one of his disciples, and he asked him and he said, John, John, Why do you always say little children love one another? And John responded and he said to him, If that be done, it is enough. You see, the church is to be known as love. And if we choose to be obedient to the commands of Christ, we will gain the reputation, the name of someone of love. But I need to remind you what I said earlier. There's a punishment for the prideful. You see, if you remember reading there in verse 11, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue? Yep, every tongue. You see, there will be a confession one day of those, according to verse 10, that are under the earth. A confession. Choosing not to confess today only forces you to confess if you don't make it to heaven and you're under the earth. It's hell. Now, I know that's not a politically correct term today, but you need to understand it because we're trying to rescue people from it. It's a place where the worm never dies and the fire never ceases. How miserable is a place that a worm can live in the midst of a fire? You ever put a worm in a fire? They don't make it long. Imagine a place where the worm never dies. You are constantly being eaten at and feeling the burn. And I know it's not politically correct. And I know there are many churches that don't want you to talk about hell. But Jesus Christ came to save us from it. And our job is to rescue others from going there. Church, this church, they were struggling. And Paul knew it. And he reminds them of the ministry of Jesus, but he had a confidence in them. Would you take a look at verse 12? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, Not as only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Let me tell you, Calvary Chapel, South Bay, they have your testimony. You know what I love about you? You hear the word of God. You hear me teach. You hear Pastor Jeff teach. And you respond. You respond in obedience. And I hear about it. Someone just told me this past Sunday, a message that I taught the week before. They said, Pastor Chet, I did the challenge to change. It worked. I couldn't believe it. I was so blessed by their obedience. You have this testimony. But let me tell you something. Not everyone is obedient. Some people, now I'm not speaking about Calvary Chapel South Bay. I mean, all of you listen to every word that comes from the mouth of God. Amen? Come on, say amen. Make your pastor feel okay. Now, here's the deal. Some people choose not to obey. When they hear the word of God, they look at their wife and they go, you called him. You told him. 
I know you texted. I know you emailed. When we get in the car, I'm going to give it to you. Some people, they meet me at the door. Some people, they meet me at the door. Pastor, I can't believe you said what you said. I'm never coming back to this church again. How dare you talk about my tithing? I'll never forget. I was in the gas line at Costco. I had just taught, I'm not going to tell you where I was. I was in the gas line of Costco, and someone from our church, used to go to our church, someone from our church pulled up in the line of Costco. I thought, oh, wow, someone from our church. I went over. I said, hey, how are you? (sighs) She looked at me. I realized, back up, beep, beep, you're having a bad day. She got out of her car, and she said to me, that message that you taught on tithing. How dare you tell me what to do with my money? I left your church. I'm out of here. Let me tell you something. Don't you tell me how to. And I thought she was going to hit me so much so. She was so mad that the Costco attendant came to me and said, what are you doing to this woman? I go, all I did was say hello. By the grace of God, Zach had my keys for something, and I told him prior to coming that I was in the Costco line, and he came and rescued me from this woman who was so mad that I had touched her pocketbook about a message on tithing. And I find sometimes when we don't like the message, we attack the messenger. One time I told one of my students at Patmos, all I said to her was, I think you have an anger problem. And the Bible says, don't let the sun go down in your anger. She threw her Bible at me. She literally threw her Bible at me. And I go, thank you for proving my point. As she was throwing her Bible at me, she goes, I don't have an anger problem. Okay, God bless you. (laughs) It's amazing. Oftentimes, when we're faithful to teach the word, that people will come against the word but not this church. They were obedient. And I want you to see their obedience because Paul, as a gifted teacher, is going to give them some practicals on what it means to be humble and obedient. Take a look, if you would. We're just going to pick it up here and run through these verses. He says, you've been obedient. And then he says this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Let me tell you what he's saying. If you're going to be humble and obedient, you've got to give it everything you've got because it goes against your flesh. When you're offended and when you've got a problem with people, you've got to give it everything you've got. Work it out with fear and trembling. Let me explain. I work out with weights. I know you can't tell, but I work out with weights, okay? And on the third set, on the last one, you see me with that bar and I'm doing this. <laughs> And I'm thinking, I need to get this bar up on those handles because it's going to drop on me. So you know what I'm doing? With fear and trembling, my whole body is shaking. I'm giving it everything I've got to get that bar back on the rack. That's what Paul's saying. You've got to give humility and obedience everything you've got because it goes against everything you are. Look what else he says. He says, with fear and trembling, for it is God who works. Now, this is a different work. We'll talk about it in a minute. It's God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You've got to trust in God's power. 
You see, this word work is the word energeo, energy. It's a supernatural power kind of word. And what he's saying is, you've got to be dependent on the power of God. Trust in God's power to help you be humble and to help you be obedient. So when you feel that fleshly monster rising up in you, you go, God, help me by the power of your Holy Spirit. And sometimes, let me tell you something, I say it out loud. And oftentimes it's in my car when I'm driving in the 405. Lord, help me by the power of your spirit. Jesus hasn't left you to do Christianity on your own. He knows you're weak. He's given you the spirit of God for you to trust in his power. All you have to do is ask him. And sometimes ask him out loud. Look what else he says. He says this. I'm going to give you some practical points. He goes on. It's God who's working you, verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. You're going to have to give it everything you got not to complain and argue. Because our natural tendency when we're hurt is to start complaining and arguing with the person. It's a supernatural tendency to go the way of God. And Paul knows that complainers will bring disputes and disputes will cause divisions. And so when he's dealing with a complainer, he nips it at the bud. You see, Christ-like people are helpers. We've got the Spirit of God in us. And you know what the Spirit of God is known as? The helper. Spiritual, spirit-filled people are supernaturally solution-minded. Spirit-filled people are forgiving Spirit-filled people are forward-thinking. I love those people that come into church. I'm a spirit-filled Christian. That's what I am. Hallelujah. (laughs) First of all, I'm like, okay, one of the fruit of the Spirit is joy, dude. Like, be happy, at least. A a spirit-filled Christian doesn't walk around going, didn't like that song. (laughs) That's not theological. And who is that new pastor? Did he get new shoes? Yes, I did. (laughs) On sale. And I want to (laughs) know, why are you changing those service times? 8.30, 10.30, 12.30. Do you like the 12.30 service better than every other service? Yes, I do. (laughs) I mean, think of how critical we can become of everything. Someone walked in here the other day. When are you guys going to deal with those pews? I mean, the color is so 1980. Really? That's what you came into church to tell us? I kind of like mauve. I really don't, so it might have been me that complained. Spiritful people are not complainers. And if you're a complainer, it could be an indication that you're the problem and not everybody else. He said, don't complain. Purpose to walk in the Spirit. Look what else he says. He says, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. He says, listen, handle problems differently than the world does. They get mad. They get bitter. They get even. They get resentful. But the word teaches love overlooks an offense. 
The word teaches forgive as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. The word says do good to your enemy. Even Jesus said, listen, love your enemy. All right, everyone, put your enemy in your mind. Go ahead, put them in your mind. Think of the work, think of play, think of wherever it is that your enemy is. I want you to give them a big old hug. Just hug them. And in your mind, I want you to say, thank you for teaching me that I've got a lot of work to do on my unconditional love. Go ahead, give them a big hug. Because that's what enemies are. Enemies are a reminder we got a lot of work to do to become unconditionally loving. One year I prayed, Lord, I want to learn more about unconditional love. I got about 10 enemies in a week. I will never pray that prayer again. God said, you want to learn unconditional love? Here's some enemies. Go love them. Because it's difficult to love an enemy. But he says that's a different way to do it. And you've got to do it different than the world. He says, become blameless. Become blameless. Now, let me tell you what that means. The first thing means you've got to begin to be. In other words, he knows they've done it wrong. He knows they're mad. He knows there's words that have been said. So you've got to become blameless. How many of you are thankful for redemption because you said or did something wrong and you're thankful that God forgives you for it? Anybody? That's becoming blameless. And what it means is that you have got to realize God's a God of redemption. And though we've done imperfect things, Paul realizes that and says, listen, just redeem it by becoming humble and be obedient. See, it assumes that. He says, become harmless. Become harmless. Listen, if you're going to be humble and you're going to be obedient, this word means, it means unmixed. It means there's no deceit. It means there's no hypocrisy in you. You know those kind of people. They smile and they say, hey, how you doing? As soon as they turn, you turn around (laughs) in the back. Do you know what she did to me? Hey, how are you? God bless you. (laughs) I hate her. See, he says, don't let that be a part of your life because the synonym of harmless is honorable. The Greek synonym of harmless is honorable. Let me tell you what's honorable. It's when you get into an argument with someone and you've got the honorable character that you're willing to listen to their side and understand their perspective. That's honorable. That's becoming harmless. He goes on and he says, act like a child of God. He says, be harmless, children of God. I ask you to turn to 1 John. Would you go there with me? 1 John chapter 3. I want you to see the characteristics of a church, a child of God. It's 1, Corinthians, 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. He says this. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is he who does not love his brother. Now, my mom's name is Pam. My dad's name is Ira. And I look like a mix between Pam and Ira Lowe. A complete mix. I've got my mom's jaw. I got my dad's nose. I'm a mix. I look like Pam and Ira Lowe. And what he's saying is act like a child of God. There will be a look about you if you're a child of God. You'll look loving And you'll look like someone who purposes to practice righteousness. You're making a daily habit of acting like a child of God. 
And what I love about what he says, he also says, shine as lights. And the Greek word here is the indication of the sun and the moon. And the idea is that in the midst of that universal black darkness, the sun still shines and the moon reflects the sun. In fact, it doesn't matter how dark the universe is, you will see the light of the sun and you will see its reflection on the moon. And what he's saying is, listen, you are reflections of Jesus as citizens of heaven on earth. And the way that he behaved is how you need to purpose to behave if you're going to choose to be a citizen of heaven. Then he says in verse 16, he says this. Oh, I'm going to go back, Philippians chapter 2. He says in verse 16, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I've not run in vain or labored in vain. Hold fast. This Greek word, it's the idea of a host handing wine to someone at their banquet. You're not necessarily holding fast, you're holding forth. And what Paul is trying to get across is, I've taught you the word, I want you to live it. Hold forth the word of God so that people can see that you truly are what you say that you are. Put it forth for everyone to see. And he closes with himself as an example, and he says, yes. And if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. Paul doesn't know he's going to live or die. And the drink offering was just a little small cup of wine that they would pour on the burnt offering to be a fragrant aroma. It's kind of like putting barbecue on chicken. And it would, you know, when you're going 4th of July, that's barbecue chicken, that's steak, that's hot dogs, that's hamburgers. And you can pick which house you want to go to by the smell. The drink offering was just to enhance the aroma in the camp of Israel. That everyone would smell this aroma, and it was a pleasing aroma. It was a barbecue to God. And he says, I'm being poured out. I'm giving my life. But you're the burnt offering. Let me tell you why. Church, listen. He closes this little mini-sermon and says this. I beseech you, therefore, brethren by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Paul says, I'm just the drink offering. And I want to set an example of faith for you. And my life is being poured out. And I want you to pour your life out. So church, let me tell you something. Who you got a problem with? Who you mad at? Who you angry at? Paul says, be humble and obedient. You're a citizen of heaven. You've got to give it everything you've got. Because your flesh is going to fight you at every turn. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? Father, we do want to thank you for the privilege of your word that teaches us how to live our life. 
And I ask you now, these faithful people that desire to hunger and thirst for your word, giving an hour of their time each and every week, that as we face the problem of people, we would choose to be humble and obedient. That's a citizen of heaven. For Lord, in a church this size, someone at some time is going to hurt us. Someone at some time is going to offend us. I'm so thankful that Paul spells out for us what we've received from Christ freely. We should freely give to others. Empower us, Spirit of God. Would you right now pray for your problem person? I'm praying for mine. Don't worry, he doesn't go to this church. Would you pray right now? Would you ask God to bless them? Would you ask God to show you how you can do good to them? Don't get mad at me. I'm just repeating Jesus' words. See, this is the truth. If you'll choose to humble yourselves and be obedient, he will break you out of the prison of resentment, bitterness, and anger. Walk in freedom. So, Lord, we know there's going to be problems with people, and you've given us tonight the way to handle those problems. Fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.